Welcome to Green Street. It is July the 2nd. A year and a day ago uh, was my first Sunday at Green Street. It was actually my first day at Green Street. Uh, I had not had an office day yet, but I had gotten a chance to speak that morning. I was scared to death somebody was going to ask me how to get somewhere, and I wasn't going to tell them where anything was because I didn't know. But it's a joy to get to be with you today. I appreciate what Blythe shared over the next uh, several weeks. You'll be hearing from several on our discipleship team just through announcements and otherwise uh, folks that uh, don't always get a chance to stand in front of you and, and you might know them. Uh, perhaps you're well-known, you, you, they're well-known to you, uh, but get a chance to see. And so as we um, are just thankful that Pastor Brandon is, is getting a rest and just I know uh, for the work that, that he does and how he loves not only each of you, but the way that he leads our staff uh, and is an encourager, and we're thankful for him. And so we're thankful to get to step into the gap uh, a bit for that as well. And so some have come to me and, you know, sort of acted as if, you know, I, I might be carrying this thing, but I can just say to you that there's a, a, a lot of incredible staff uh, that Green Street is blessed to have. And so I'm thankful to serve uh, right alongside of them. I want to invite you to go ahead and open in your Bible to the book of Philippians. Over the next six weeks, including today, we're going to be looking uh, in Paul's letter to the Philippians and be balancing that just a bit with uh, teaching that is in the Psalms as well. But for the most part, we're going to be looking in the book of Philippians, and as any time a sermon series starts, you know that you start with the first verse on the first page of the first chapter. And so we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin uh, with verse 1, Paul writing uh, to the church in Philippi, and he's writing from imprisonment. And so we come to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading with verse 1. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for the risen Lamb whom we sing about today. And, and Lord, as we turn our eyes towards your Word, would you give us and teach us and, and, and point us to what we need to know, what we need to hear, uh, what perhaps we need to put into practice. Lord, would you challenge and encourage us as only you can. We thank you, Father, and we look to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Paul writes to the church in Philippi, a church that he actually uh, was a part in helping to found. More than likely, this letter was written about 60 A.D., not 1960, but 060 uh, A.D., and it was written about 10 years or so after the founding of the Philippian church. Perhaps the most well-known Philippian in the New Testament is the Philippian jailer who comes to faith in Christ because as Paul and Silas sang in the middle of the night, even after being so wounded in the beating that they had received, uh, that uh, this Philippian jailer, when the earthquake happened and the prisoners stayed in their cells and he then did not have to end his life in in fearing what the Roman uh, guard would do to him for losing all of these prisoners, he asked Paul and Silas, what must must I do to be saved? So Paul and Silas go to his home and not only give the gospel to him, but give the gospel to his entire family, and his whole family comes to faith in Christ. And so no doubt, as Paul is writing uh, to the church in Philippi, we can assume, uh, I think with good weight, that the Philippian jailer and his family are sitting among the congregation that gets a chance to receive and to hear this letter. Uh, The city of Philippi was located in what we would think of now as northeastern Greece near the coast, but it was a very prominent and and wealthy city for the time. Uh, It was a city that actually the the citizens there had been so faithful to the Roman Empire that there was a kind of colonial understanding so that those who were in Philippi were actually citizens of Rome. And so that made that town not only identify with the Romans, but have this kind of uh, patriotic or or this kind of uh, civic mindset that they were very concerned about their own town, about the area around it, about the larger influence of the empire. And perhaps that kind of culture also helped them to be supportive of the Apostle Paul and his ministry in a special way that when they came to faith in Christ, the same support they were giving uh, for their homeland and for various avenues in that world, uh, they gave to Paul. And so Paul writes several times about how thankful he is for their stewardship, their giving, uh, the way in which they had loved him uh, through that. Philippi was actually founded by Alexander the Great's father, sort of a balance of founding and conquering, uh, but nevertheless it was a place that was filled with Greeks and with Romans, uh, with Thracians, and a very small Jewish population. And so as Paul writes, it's not until a little bit into the life of the church that they had to answer questions like, if we come to faith in Jesus, does that mean that we also need uh, to to take on every aspect of Old Testament law and every process uh, that those who are in the Jewish community would say that we need to have? And so Paul walks through some of that as well with them as the letter goes on. Uh, But he comes today to really something that we think of as standing out as the verse that we read, verse 6. We can almost think of this today as a target. And you could almost think of Philippians 1.6 as the bullseye. And to some extent, we're going to circle around that bullseye just a bit. But largely, our focus is going to be the driving point that Paul makes in those first 12 verses. And that is verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so I am calling today, it's not over. Because I think in some ways that is what Paul is driving home to the Philippian church uh, in a special way. And so as we walk through the text today, perhaps you will see that as well. 
I've got a few points, like every Baptist preacher, and so I'm going to go ahead and just dive into those as well. The first thing that I'd like to say to you today from this passage is this, partnership in the gospel brings joy and unity. Partnership in the gospel brings joy and unity. This is what Paul says uh, in verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership in the gospel, partnership in the message of Jesus and the hope of who he is brings joy and unity. The author Lloyd Douglas, who was well-known in the mid-20th century, told about a time when he was a university student living in one of these old homes that had been turned into a set of apartments. And he lived upstairs, and as he would head down the stairway and out the door each morning to go to class, there was a music teacher, a retired music teacher, who lived in one of the rooms downstairs. And he had reached the point in his life where he was a shut-in. He was no longer able to go out. But they had this sort of morning routine where as he came down the stairs and got ready to go out the door, he would knock on this old music teacher's door and inevitably the door would open and they would begin the same exchange that they had every day. And he would ask this music teacher, well, what's, what do you know today? What's good today? And the music teacher would reach over beside his chair and he had a metal tuning fork and he would wrap it against the wheelchair that he was sitting in and that note would ring out if you've ever heard a, a tuning fork uh, resolve and, and so he heard this high-pitched note that would then go out and the music teacher would say this, well, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday, it'll be middle C today, it'll be middle C tomorrow. The piano across the hall is out of tune, and the tenor that sings upstairs sings flat, but this is middle C, and it'll be so as long as I'm here. You know, for each of us, there is one fixed reality when everything else is sinking sand in our world, and the fixed reality for us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else, all else is sinking sand. And so if we are going to have a partnership if we are going to find purpose and unity and joy together, it had better be in the gospel or else otherwise it's a lost cause ultimately. And so Paul talks about the joy that he has in the partnership and the friendship that he has with these folks. For Paul, the Philippians were people he liked to see come in his way. You know, those kind of Christians, not the ones that you go, oh no, here comes so-and-so. What can I hide behind? No, the Philippians were the people who Paul had joy to be in relationship with because at the heart of who they were and who they wanted to be and what they wanted to do and what they wanted to be about was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what rooted them was the truth in Jesus. That was a movie that I thought of as Pastor Brandon was leading us through the series on 2nd and 3rd John, and I believe it was last week where we were speaking especially about two guys, Diotrephes and Demetrius, and Diotrephes was the this, this selfish, narcissistic person, while Demetrius was shown to be uh, someone who had compassion and a love for his fellow saints. And I couldn't help but think of a movie that was, uh, I wasn't around when it first came out, but I saw as a kid called Demetrius and the Gladiators. It wasn't about the same Demetrius, but it was one of those biblical epics that came out in the 1950s. And an actor named William Marshall plays this 
uh, Nubian gladiator that's just a mountain of a man named Glycon. And in this movie, in the 1950s, they actually released movies that had biblical characters in them that were portrayed, at least mostly accurately. And Simon Peter had a part in this movie, Demetrius and the Gladiators, and he was interacting not only with Demetrius, the main character, who was experiencing a season of rebellion, but ultimately the movie was actually a, a pretty great portrayal of forgiveness and repentance. Demetrius, in this season of rebellion, crosses paths with Simon Peter, who's trying to speak into his heart and life. And Demetrius gets upset because Glycon, this mighty, just stoic, powerful, Nubian gladiator, wants to go up to Simon Peter and talk to him as well. And afterwards, Demetrius realized that Glycon had been talking to Peter, and he gets upset because he didn't want Glycon going down the road of faith or Jesus or any of those things. He says, why in the world and what did you say to Simon Peter? This is what Glycon said. I asked Simon Peter, or the fisherman, I think as they called him, whether anybody who's killed as many men in the arena as I have could ever hope to sleep at night. You and I are here this morning because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one truth for a world that just wants to sleep at night, who wants peace in their hearts. And my opinions won't do that. And my preferences won't do that. And my traditions won't do that. And my perspectives won't do that. But if we're going to be about anything, we had better be about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the joy and unity that comes from the hope that is only in Him. John Newton is most famous for his hymn, Amazing Grace, but another hymn that he wrote says it this way, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled chest. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. For the church of Jesus Christ in a weary world that is just looking for the ability to close their eyes at night and to have peace, the hope that we offer is Jesus. It is always Jesus. And so the second thing that I would say to you today is this. Jesus working on his children is a certainty. Jesus working on his children is a certainty. You know, anytime I've spoken on this passage through the years, I love verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I grew up as a child in the church in the 1980s, and the tradition that we were from uh, music was of a, of a certain, you know, standpoint of what it could and couldn't be. I can remember one time walking into a place and they had a sort of, uh, you know, marching band drum on the stage and, and we sort of turned and walked right back out. Some of y'all know that, you know, where I'm coming from. And so it was a world where when we had Sandy Patty tapes or otherwise, there were some songs that we fast forwarded through because they were just a little bit too rowdy. Anybody in here today? Students' cassette tapes were kind of like Spotify that you could rewind with a pencil. It was, um, it was special. But one of the guys that we would listen to was a guy named Steve Green. If you don't know who Steve Green is, just imagine Steve Seegers with not quite, you know, as good of a golf game. Uh, Steve Green didn't quite have the golf game Steve does, but wonderful voice and, and sang a number of great songs. 
I remember one of the songs that would be playing in our car and around our house from Steve Green went like this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He'll be faithful to complete it. He who started the work will be faithful to complete it in you. But as that song rang out as a little boy, I started to hear that great truth. And you know, as I came to a place where really owning my faith and in later high school and college, I remember starting to read the Bible on my own more consistently. One of the things I remember was coming to Philippians and assuming that, man, that's a great way to end. I bet Paul ended Philippians by saying, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it or will bring it to completion upon the day of Christ Jesus. I bet that was a great way for Paul to conclude. And I began to look through chapter 4, and it wasn't there. I kept flipping backwards and backwards, and then I realized this. Paul started his letter by saying that great truth. And you know, I'm certainly not the one whose opinion matters the most, but I'm not sure you could find a more important verse that the Apostle Paul ever penned than Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus working on his children is a certainty. Aren't you glad that the Apostle Paul didn't say this, and I'm certain of this, that you're going to get it all together and you're going to pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. You're going to get it all figured out, and by the time heaven, uh, heaven's gates are standing before you, you'll have checked every box. That's not our hope. You know what our hope is? Is that surrounded by Jesus on both sides, he who began a good work, that's being Jesus, bringing us all the way to the day of Jesus Christ, his own day, that it's Jesus on this side and Jesus on that side. And you know what? He's the one working all the way through as well. And so we recognize that Jesus working on his children is a certainty. How do we know it's a certainty? Well, because of the words that Paul used. He doesn't say in verse 6, and I'm hopeful of this, I'm praying for this. It just might be that this could happen or would happen. It's not a subjunctive possible text that's used. It's a future uh, certainty te uh, uh, tense that's used. I'm sure of this, that he who began in work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus working on his children is a certainty that for you and I who are in Christ, it's a bumpy road of, of walking this life even with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. But you know what? We can be certain in our destination because past, present, and future, Jesus Christ is not only with us, but working on and in and through us. And so likewise, number three, this work is past and it's present and it's future. This work is past he who began a good work, it's present, will bring it. He is bringing it now until the day of Christ Jesus. Future, this coming day where eternity is set into motion, that all through that time, Jesus' work is past and present and future. The emperor Constantine is probably most well-known for being the Roman emperor who made Christianity the established religion of the Roman Empire. But he's less well-known for himself not being willing to convert to Christianity until his deathbed. 
And the reason for that was because Constantine believed a superstition that some others in that day believed is that after you were baptized, you only got one sin, and if you did more than that, you were out, and there was no hope for you. So Constantine said, well, I better wait as long as I can, and hopefully if I get baptized on my deathbed, I won't have enough terrible thoughts before I pass to use more than one sin. How hopeless of a gospel is that? Paul reminds us otherwise, that he who began a good work in you is bringing it and will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's not a depressing gospel. That's the gospel that will enable us to keep walking day after day after day because at the end of the day, it's not about us. Because when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And so Jesus' work is past and present and future. Jesus had to rescue you yesterday. He's going to have to rescue you today. He's going to have to rescue you tomorrow. But he who promised is faithful. And God's grace and God's mercy is enough for each one of us. And so likewise, number four, continuing the same train of thought in verse six is a great hope for us. We will someday be complete. We will someday be complete. Can you even imagine what that's going to be like? No more frailty, no more failure, uh, no more you know, uh, frustration, no more points in life that bring sadness. We will someday be complete. There was a senior adult lady who was trying to put together a box, of, uh, 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 excuse me, a, a puzzle that had come out of a box. She called her grandson, her adult grandson who lived nearby, and she said, I'm having the worst trouble putting this puzzle together. Can you please come help me because I can't even get it started? And he said, well, Grandma, what in the world are you putting a puzzle of? She said, well, on the box it shows a rooster, but when I put these pieces out, I just can't get them together. So sure enough, the adult grandson comes over and he begins to look at the pieces scattered on the table. He looks at the box and he said, Granny, we're going to need to put all these pieces back in the box and put it away because no matter how, many, how hard we try, we're not going to be able to make a rooster out of this. So it's time we take all the cornflakes and put them back in the box <laughs> and put it back on the shelf. <laughs> you and I at best are missing a few pieces. Some of us are missing a lot, but we will someday be complete. Someday, all that hurts, all that's difficult in our lives will be laid aside. Someday, John writes it this way, that we'll be like him because we see him as he is. So the Lord Jesus will do a work in us that we really can only imagine. But while you've got your, your thumb or a marker in Philippians 1, I want to invite you to turn back to the Psalms. In comparing the same truth that is told throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, we're going to look at Psalm 51 today, just a few verses from what David writes. Many of you familiar with the psalm, 
Know that this is David's repentance psalm, that it is given after he is caught and after he realizes his uh, need for forgiveness. And so in chapter 51, I'm just going to read a few verses for you, beginning with verse 8. This is what David writes about not only the hope that he has in the Lord's forgiveness, but, but calling on the Lord to honor that forgiveness. Psalm 51, verse 8, David writes, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, in this life... We're at a place where we constantly are claiming what John writes, correct? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we find our need again and again for the Lord's rescue and for his work in our hearts and in our lives. As David called out for the same great hope, here millennia later we're able to look at the same words and to recognize the same great hope that we have as well. And so the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it or will bring it to completion uh, upon the day of Christ Jesus brings great hope for us. There will be a day where we will no longer need forgiveness. There will be a day where we will no longer need fixing. There will be a day where there's no longer any missing pieces and we will someday be complete. And so in light of David's words, in light of the words that we read here from the Apostle Paul, both under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in light of all of that, we come to the great hope and the great truth that as Paul speaks about Jesus' day, number five, Jesus' day will not be something to fear for believers, but a day when we're made whole. That because of what Jesus Christ has done in our highs and in our lows, that we will find the hope of knowing that to go home means that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the hope for us is to see Jesus, and because of what Jesus has done, that day will not be something to fear, but a day in which we celebrate being made whole. As I mentioned before, we're sort of circling verse 6 as the culmination of this passage. But as Paul continues and as he goes on, he talks about what the fruit of this truth in our life will do. That when we, we can't help when we read verses like Philippians 1.6 to find a tremendous amount of hope. And in the midst of that hope, I, I, if you're going to sort of represent it graphically the best that I can, it would look something like this, that hope moves us forward, uh, and then shows that not only can we have hope in Christ, but there is a love that's birthed in the fact that we, we recognize what Jesus has done, that our response is not morality immediately, but our response is a love for Jesus. You know, for your life and my life, we can't ultimately have any good fruit in, in our life unless a love of Jesus is the foundation for everything else we do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Now, we can obey commandments and we can accomplish certain things all day long, but it'll only come to drudgery if the love of Jesus is not our foundation. But the hope of the gospel, 
That he who began is not only working, but will continue to be faithful to bring it to completion. That the hope of all of what Jesus has done, all that Jesus is doing, and all that Jesus will do, that hope can't help but birth a love in us. And it's only out of that hope and that love that we find the kind of knowledge and discernment to walk through life, to make better decisions, to be more wise, to walk more closely with the Lord. Paul goes on. In later verses, verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God's my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, number one, we can't be pure and blameless apart from the work of Jesus Christ in our life. That our only hope is that when God looks at us, he sees what Jesus Christ has done. But the kind of pure and blamelessness that is being talked about in this passage is the steady work of the gospel, the hope and the love that is, that is really only brought about and continued by the work of the Holy Spirit and our response to the gospel moves us in to the knowledge and discernment of navigating life and walking with Christ, whereby, like the Old Testament would use the word blameless, this is not speaking of sinlessness or somehow a kind of self-righteous, you know, absent-minded, not, not accurately looking our life to think somehow we don't need the forgiveness of God, but instead pure and blameless in the sense that we are walking with Jesus and he is pleased with us because our relationship is centered around wanting to be more like Christ and to walk with him where he leads. And so hope that births knowledge, excuse me, that births love, that then births knowledge and discernment and propels us forward to not only walking with the Lord, but becoming more like him as he leads. If I were to ask you this morning who the four faces on Mount Rushmore are, all around this room there'd probably be a lot of folks who knew all four of them. You know, maybe the two most well-known faces on Mount Rushmore are the faces of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. That's the two presidents that everybody comes to first, right? Now, if you knew even more, you might say the next most well-known face on that rock, and that is Thomas Jefferson. But if you were to think about, now, who's the fourth? You might struggle for a moment, but as no doubt many of you in here are saying, I know who it is, I know who it is. The fourth face is the face of Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was president between 1901 and 1908. He came to the presidency because the president for which he was the vice president, William McKinley, was assassinated. Teddy Roosevelt served as president for essentially two terms. And after that, he chose not to pursue a third term, even though he legally could. And he more than likely would have been elected, but he chose not to. But in 1912, he said, you know what? I wish I had not given up the presidency and I'm gonna try one more time. Theodore Roosevelt was a mountain of a man. As a young boy, he was told by his father because he was so sickly that you're gonna to have to put your body through hard work or you're gonna spend your whole life being sickly. And so Theodore Roosevelt did just that. 
And he started boxing and he started running and he started hiking and climbing, everything he could do to where he was in some of the strongest physical shape of any president that we've ever had. In 1911, Theodore Roosevelt was campaigning, excuse me, 1912, as a third-party candidate, and he was given a speech in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And as he stood before all those people and as there were those who were coming through the line to shake his hand before he spoke, there was a man who came up, and as he came up to Theodore Roosevelt, he pulled a pistol. And this man shot Theodore Roosevelt in the chest. The bullet went through his shirt pocket that held his notes for his speech folded up, about 50 pages of folded notes, and they also held his eyeglass case. And the bullet passed through those notes, and it passed through that eyeglass case, and because of that, more than likely, it saved his life. But that bullet went five inches deep into Theodore Roosevelt's chest, and he began to bleed all over his shirt. And without a microphone, Theodore Roosevelt leaned forward and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna have to ask you to be very quiet for you see, I've just been shot. And his cries began to go out across the auditorium. Finally, everyone calmed down and he said, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt with a bloody shirt and a bullet five inches into his chest, spoke for 84 minutes without a microphone. They don't make them like that anymore. Now, when you hear a story like that, you think, boy, that Theodore Roosevelt, he must have been just a mountain of a man, an impervious soul. I bet nothing got to him. As a young man, Theodore Roosevelt came home on Valentine's Day as 25, 26-year-old man. And that same day, he lost his mother and his wife who had just given birth to their daughter. He kept a diary, and he wrote in that day, the light has gone out of my life. In 1912, even after being shot and after giving a tremendous speech, he lost the election of 1912. And when one of his friends came to him to console him and started talking about other pathways that he could take, starting to talk to him about what other future he could have, Teddy Roosevelt said this, for heaven's sake, don't talk about my future. My future is in the past. Teddy Roosevelt would often deal with difficult situations by doing something really hard. And he and a group of men, including his son, went on an expedition in the Amazon to explore unreached and uncharted areas, a river that nobody knew about that was almost 500 miles long that today bears his name that was then called the River of Doubt in Portuguese. And they went through rapids and mosquitoes and snakes and piranhas and native tribes that had never been dealt with before and were very hostile, and Teddy Roosevelt almost lost his life. It was late one night in the torrential rains that often happen in that area of the world that Teddy Roosevelt lay in a tent that was soaking wet because they couldn't keep all of the water out. And he was in a fever between 103 degrees and 105 degrees, and as he lay there, he was convinced that he wouldn't be alive the next morning. He had brought a vial of morphine with him, and he decided that if it came to a point he knew he wasn't going to live, that that was how he was going to end his life. And those around him began to come because day after day, he had dealt with not only an infection in his leg, but disease and all sorts of things, and he was giving out. 
And he knew that the expedition couldn't continue at the speed that he was going to have to go, and he said, this is going to be it. And his son Kermit came to him, and Theodore Roosevelt expected to be able to tell his son goodbye. And as Kermit leaned over his father, he said, Dad, I'm not going to let you die. And if I've got to carry you out of here myself, I'm going to do that. Theodore Roosevelt realized in that moment that it was too dangerous for him to end his life because his son would probably not make it out alive. And so if he was going to try to do what he could for his son, he was going to have to do all that he could to trudge out. And incredibly, he did. And he made it out. You know, for each of us, we walk through days and nights where we say, the light has gone out of my life. We may face different points where we say, please don't speak to me about my future. My future is in the past. But you know what? There's a son who's not willing to let us give up. There's a son who's not willing to let us go. And it's he, the son, who has began a good work in us and will continue to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can I tell you this this morning? It's not over. It's not over. You know, some of you might be here today, maybe because it's a holiday, there might be even some of you who've, who've, this is the first time you've walked into a church in a while. It's not over. The Savior that we serve is the kind of Savior who does the work And it's only through him and trust in him that we find again and again that it is never, ever, ever over. As long as we draw breath and can look to Christ, it's not over. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Roosevelt couldn't see in his own life just what not only his own life would mean, but even later generations, what that would be like. Imagine what it'd be like to grow up with a dad who stormed the Amazon for fun and was president of the United States. And even when he got shot in the chest, it didn't mean he wasn't given his speech. Roosevelt had several sons, and one of the things he instilled in them was bravery and to say, you know what, if there's ever a fight that our nation's called into, we're going to participate and we're not going to act like we're higher class than anybody else. We want to be there to take our part in the fight as well. Theodore Roosevelt died in 1920. 24 years later, the United States was finding itself as one of the nations that was going to storm the beaches of Normandy. And as Eisenhower had already written his resignation letter, not sure exactly how that was going to go, the men began to storm the beaches at Utah and Omaha. After the battle, one man described what it was like to look over those who were there just gathering what had been done. And all of a sudden, he looked up, and he, to his surprise, saw somebody he wasn't expecting. Because, you see, Theodore Roosevelt's son, Teddy Jr., was also participating in the battle that day. Do you know who the oldest person to go in on D-Day was? Teddy Jr. on a cane. As the man looked over, he saw there was Teddy Jr. making his way up the beach. Theodore Roosevelt's Spirit, his courage, his bravery had kept impacting even later generations. And you know, for us, 
It not only is it not over because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion, to continue to complete it, to, to complete it all the way until the day of Christ Jesus, but the Lord Jesus continue, continues to do the good that he's done in our life and in others' lives to impact the kingdom of God for future generations. It's not over, and it's not over not only because of you, but because God, what God wants to do through you for the sake of others, even as time goes on. So will you hear the gentle hope of the message of Jesus Christ as given through the Apostle Paul. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He'll be faithful to complete it. He who started a work, he'll be faithful to complete it in you. Father, thank you for the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, for the times it seems the light has gone out of our life, for the times perhaps where we don't want to think about the future or the present, Lord, would you remind us of the great hope that is in you? Father, for hearts and lives around this room today who need to resonate with the gospel truth that it's not over, it's not over, it's not over in their life. It's not over in the life of their loved ones. It's not over in situations and circumstances. Lord, would you speak to hearts and lives today? Would you encourage us that there is a Son, the Son, Jesus Christ, who is not willing that any should perish? no one can snatch out of his hands. And so, Father, however you would encourage and challenge hearts today, we just ask that you do the work that only you can. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.